From 11FS, I'm Jason Bates, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up on today's show, we talk about Revolut's investment banking culture and their 13-hour days. Alipay does a thing, again, while the UAE appoints its first minister for AI. And finally, the Bank of England uses Snapchat to promote the new £10, and we ask why. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from our office in WeWork London, Oldgate. My name is Jason Bates, and I'm joined today by my 11FS colleagues, Simon Tallman-Taylor. I now know what a grape and a raisin are. <laughs> That's definitely an in-joke that no one's going to, uh, to understand. It will get there. And David Dunkabrier. Hello. How are you guys doing? Pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I learned a thing today. I learned that... Uh, raisins are dried grapes. I, I lived a whole life without being aware of that fact, and I feel I feel better about that. And now you want to just share it with the world? I, well, the world now knows that I might know fintech, but I don't know fruit. <laughs> <laughs> so, what have you guys been up to this week? Uh, well, other than uh, my my massive revelation mere moments ago, um, I was in uh, Madrid last week for BBVA's Open Talent competition, which was fantastic. I got to see some old colleagues and friends, as well as lots of new ones, um, as well as some client work. Uh, I've been working on some blockchain initiatives with a number of companies in the media business, looking at how they can change payments. Uh, and I did a blog post on 11fs.com as well, looking at the risks and opportunities of token sales and ICOs. And I got some exciting feedback on that. Yeah, have you been? Did you do a uh, blockchain insider episode? Yeah, yeah. Um, episode sixteen is out. Episode seventeen just dropped on Thursday as well. Um, and episode seventeen, we got the CEO of Ripple, Brad Garlinghouse, for a good twenty minutes, um, talking about uh, all the things with going on with between Swift uh, and Ripple and, and some of the some of the controversy that's going on there. Nice, David. I like my diary is basically end game Tetris right now, which is quite uh, like I think I'd literally have to look back to know what I was doing just because it's been ridiculously intense in terms of stuff that's going through. It's like building a bank is like a thing and it's difficult. Who would have known? Right. Yeah. Uh, team progressing really nicely with that. That's pretty cool. Got to go and hang out with a really interesting. Uh, if anybody saw this on Twitter yesterday, like the most swankiest place that I've ever been in my entire life, like stately, stately manor out west way to talk to a bank board, which was really fun. Uh, and uh, quite enlightening. So, um, but I did feel like the commoner kind of in that space. I have to say. So, yeah, feels indeed. Yeah. I just went through learning what the grapes, grapes and raisins were, yeah. were the same thing. So I feel you. Indeed. Man. So, uh, <laughs> but no, busy times doing fun things. More sleep would be nice. Cool. I was with Simon with BBVA, which was amazing. Actually, I just really enjoyed it. I got to talk to their chairman and to Derek White, Head of Customer Solutions, and Rob Brown, Head of Design. Uh, the chairman blew me away, a 73-year-old who's coming essentially to the end of his term, being, I think, the chairman of, chairperson of BBVA since 2001, and in 2007 essentially decided that this, all of this stuff was going to change and that fintech was like going to be a thing, so they needed to get going and move some of the senior bankers and move in technologists. I mean, that was, that was an early move. That was an early spot. Uh, so, yeah, blown away by by that talk. Wow. So let's hear from our guests who have been waiting very quietly while we talk about our week. So joining us, we have friend of the show, Tech 100 number 68 and FT Alphaville journalist, uh, Kadim Shuba. How's it going? What are you, what's the 68? You're apparently number 68 in the Tech 100. Oh, yeah. The UK. Oh, the UK. So I am. According to Business Insider, you're on the top 100 coolest people in tech in the UK. I'm so glad we're discussing this. Was it, <laughs> was, it was it coolest? I think it was hottest, wasn't it? Oh, was it, it hottest? Yeah. I don't know what temperature it is, but it's coolest one of those temperatures. <laughs> I can't decide if Callum's hot or cold, but he's awesome. Because like, like calling somebody cool is, like, is one thing. Calling you hot, my friend. I think that'd be a little bit creepy. Mm. If uh, Business Insider, like, here's the hundred people we're most attracted to in tech. <laughs> That's a list I'd look at, though. I really would. I bet that exists. I actually got a, a, or shared an award at the Europas for hottest founders, hottest uh, oh, actually, startup founders. Business Insider did do, because one of my colleagues is on a list of Business Insider's hottest financial journalists um, in the in the US. So they actually, they have done that. In the past. Although there's a gender potential issue there, I guess, depending on who's on the list. 
And alongside uh, Kadim, we have our resident consultant, advisor, blogger, fintech insider, news commentator, Sharon O'Dea. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. What have you been up to this week? Uh, I have been over in Cork, uh, working with a software company out there who do kind of internal analytics, and over in Amsterdam, talking to a couple of other clients, flying here, there and everywhere, really. Excellent. Well, let's get on with the news. Okay, first up. Our culture is about getting shit done. Revolut founder on why his people are working 12 to 13 hours a day. We had quite a discussion on fintechinsidernews.com. Sharon, I think you had some things to say on this. I did. I had some strong opinions. Um, So the story was um, the founder of uh, Revolut, Nikolai Storonsky, he was talking about the delivery culture, I suppose, that they have at at Revolut and how they work 12, 13 hour days and over the weekends in order to to get shit done, in his words, Um, that people are working through the weekend, uh, but nonetheless that they are grown ups and it's up to them how they manage their time. I I had a few issues with this. So I I sort of had a little rant on the FinTech Insider News forum, uh, which turned into a blog post that I then posted on LinkedIn um, and got lots of feedback from people who work in banking and tech. Um, So, I mean, for me, that sort of exemplified a lot of the cultural problems you see in in tech, in banking, in fintech, um, around organisational culture, and that's kind of what I do a lot of work in, so I have strong opinions. Uh, So anyway, um, the way I see it is that it just doesn't make business sense to work that way. You know, it it doesn't make a sustainable business, but more to the point, it... uh, it damages the quality of the product. So if you've got people who never leave the office, how can they make products for people who, who have real lives and real problems? Um, and I think that the companies who fetishise that kind of working culture are missing out on a whole heap of, of talent from people who can't or just don't want to work 60-hour weeks. I know you've had uh, Liz and Gayla and, and a number of others are talking about all of those kind of gender imbalance issues. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's also commercially short-sighted. So when people finally think, you know, fuck this and leave, then um, it costs money to replace them, to get people to be productive. Uh, and so ultimately, to me, it felt like it was a failure of leadership. So, um, you know, not picking on Revolut in particular. I think it, it's uh, endemic across the, the, the sector. Uh, but where you brag about doing 12, 13 hour days, you, you know, actually it creates a culture for everyone else who works with you and near you that they feel they have to do the same. So, yeah. I mean, I guess this isn't a new thing. We've seen investment banks or strategy houses or new law firms, magic circle law firms, just working people to death through the through the years. You know, what's your view, Kelly? Um, well, I'm trying to be like super uh, positive and nice about everyone this week, um, <laughs> and so it on. <laughs> uh, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna you know try and think about like what's the argument in fa- you know in favor or whatever. I mean, I think there's. Uh, getting like a company's culture uh, right is very tricky, and almost certainly there are some businesses where it's like a tough working environment. Like there will, you know, what the you know what you're doing is not like it's not an easy industry. People have to work hard and that kind of stuff. And so uh, I don't know. I, I'm kind of sympathetic to the idea of a of a boss saying, "Listen, this isn't an easy place to work. Um, you're going to work hard. You're going to work long hours, um, and we're going to be upfront with you about what it's like." Um, but I, and I think you're right. There's that you lose you lose lose certain people as a result of that, and the risk is that that turns from you know this is a hard place to work to this is like a uh, you know a you know a damaging place to work, and so you know if if it's the case that it's a damaging place to work, then obviously I think people should be worried. If it's the case that he's just saying, listen, we're a startup, we're trying to grow really fast, you know, it's not easy. Um, and you know, if people slack, then you know we're not going to you know double revenues every year. I don't know. I can kind of see the sort of logic there to saying, yeah, you know, this job's hard, and you'll be expected to work hard and long and whatever. What about you guys? Yeah, I think I think this is I think this is really. Uh, I think he led himself into saying stuff that I think he didn't. If he had the opportunity again, he wouldn't say, right? You know, because the the whole sort of get shit done mentality. Like, I'm a I'm a big advocate of that. But when I say get shit done, I mean like don't fuck about basically, you know, like figure out the most effective way of doing it and do that thing. Um, Cause there's, I think they sort of talk about sort of paralysis of analysis and actually like, that's one thing, but like you can't sprint forever. I think this is the kind of point that you, mm-hmm. you sort of kept making Sharon, where it's about actually you can't just sort of work 13 hour days every day and the weekend and, 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 and for that to be an expectation of actually what the norm is, you know, I don't think anybody's afraid of like a, you know, 
a hard graft at the weekend if you have to but like doing that four times a month is when like and the norm of it that's when it becomes a super super problem doesn't it so i think um there's a to your point Kadim, there's a weird like if you want to build something from nothing you've got to work harder than the the incumbents and actually they you know the incumbents work nine to five five days a week and that's the case but there's still a real big difference between the people who are like founders of a company and the people who are employees of the company and actually if they're employing somebody to come in and work you know during the week and actually it's it's pretty unreasonable to expect them to work every weekend to do things um and again if you if you're spending all that money to actually attain and and attract really interesting talent but you break it and they leave then what's the point right so i kind of i I feel for him because i think he probably said stuff he didn't necessarily 100% mean and but I completely take on the context of what you're saying Sharon it feels like actually if this is the the norm for the company then it feels like a much bigger problem than if it's like a, hey guys we've got a big thing let's all week work the weekend please you know but you also have to look at where he worked before I mean he was at Credit Suisse he was at Lehman Brothers there's this thing about people bringing the culture and the model of the organization that they expect with them from their previous lives. You work in a place, you kind of work out how work works. And then if you're not careful, you just rebuild that in some form where you are. So high performance, super hard, you know, well rewarded, live hard, play hard. There's something about that investment banking thing that he's brought across. Uh, and that is a, an established cultural model of, of a certain type of hard-hitting organisation. But but I, I don't think it's just investment banking, though. I think the last few jobs I've had before 11FS, I think I've signed away my my sort of uh, waiver of human rights when it comes to kind of doing it. You know, like, uh, you know... Probably you wasn't my, Yeah, probably wasn't my human rights waiver that I was doing, but it was definitely signing away the fact that, you know, 50 hours was not the norm type thing, you know. So, you know, because actually that's almost what the expectation is, which is a weird one that they set that norm but again it's like uh, to, and I think this is to your point who are you excluding by yeah. doing those things you well know? It, you know I, I spent four years working for for a global bank and and it does become a you know senior leadership dick waving contest for, you know who can stay the latest and that means ultimately whoever has to get in at half eight or leave at five o'clock gets overlooked for promotion maybe misses out on their bonus doesn't get the interesting projects people sort of make assumptions you know I, it happened all the time and you know and it, to the, the detriment of like the the product and the, the outcomes, really. David uses a term all the time, quant and qual. There's a yeah. there's a there's an amount of work, and then there's a quality of work. I thought that was going to be a dick waving reference. There. I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh god, where yeah. are we going? Here? Yeah, I'm about to bury David <laughs> here. That's what you do with it that counts. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the same. Um, but there was a story in the ladders.com as well about um, sort of tech workers worrying about age discrimination. There are stages of life in which you probably could do 12 to 13 hours a day, and you probably live in a city centre, and you're probably trying to grow your career. In which case, if it suits that person and they can dedicate that time to their work and that's a choice they want to make, then I don't think anybody should stand in their way of doing that. But also we should value the complexity and the diversity of input that you can get from people who have a more thinking time b different skills and c stepping back from it though revolut have grown remarkably quickly they've taken on a lot of users they've grown a lot and they're building a lot of products and i guess they're saying we have a culture of just executing and compared to a lot of big banks who have a culture of talking about maybe doing something i think that's a useful contrast um but the way in which they position it with the media can the value of his message is completely been lost in how this has been put well, across I mean, which is quite a shame but the key thing i mean so obviously a culture comes from the from the top and so if the founder is saying what i'm about is working long hours and kicking ass um it's, you know if you're an employee there you set an expectation yeah you're not going to sneak out at five o'clock because you, you know i've had that before yeah. you know you leave at six and people go part-time <laughs> and actually that's the hours i get paid to work yeah yeah you're made to feel guilty for doing it's, it it's about the output it's 100% about the output. I, I think that's like saying, though, it's like, well, you know, the pyramids are great and like only like 40,000 people died making them. You know, it's like the, you know, the delivery doesn't always but, but, necessitate. But the other the, metaphor might be if you want to be an Olympic champion, 
you sacrifice your life. And that is, you know, that's a particular uh, decision that you make at the time that I'm going to train all hours, I'm going to eat a crazy diet, I'm going to give up my social life in order to achieve greatness. Yeah. So I might say that there's a, you know, but you've got a to different have, you've metaphor got to create, You've got to create the room for people to be able to do that if they want to inside of a culture. But at a certain stage and a certain uh, age of organisation, that it reaches a point where you can't be staffed exclusively with those people because not everybody can be the best. Well, the, the, the issue there, because you have a founder who's saying, listen, we are building something great. You're, you're helping building it. You're helping to build it. So we've got to work all hours of the day. So, I mean, the staff might get you know, some shares, but they're primarily paid in income. The person who's getting the benefit of the, you know, building this great thing is the founder. So the kind of like the dynamics are, are more, I guess, pyramids than Olympic sprinter. So moving on to the second story, uh, the FCA produced a report this week with lessons learned from their sandbox. And for international listeners, the FCA is the uh, Financial Conduct Authority, one of the regulators in the UK. And the sandbox is a new initiative that they launched, was it a, over a year ago now, where they encouraged... Longer than that, actually. So they're, they're up to cohort three, just about to start thinking about cohort four. So it must be nearly two and a bit. Where they bought in uh, new firms and indeed traditional firms that were looking to test uh, propositions that could deliver great end results for uh, for the end customer, the consumer, but maybe in some regulatory grey area. Robo advice was always the one brought up. Is it guidance? Is it advice? Where does that fit? So, uh, what are the lessons learned? Um, some interesting points, and like you say, because everybody's pretty much tried to copy this, I'm, it'll be very interesting to see if there's a, a continual sort of view of uh, these trends happening in other other geographies. But interesting one, probably number one, is that about 40% of the firms that actually went through the testing of the first cohort actually received funding afterwards. So I, I know we did talk about this probably way back in like episode two or three of Fintech Insider, which is kind of weird. Um, but um, the idea that whether the, this was almost seen as a bit of a, a stamp of approval in terms of the, the relative level of a success. And I, I imagine those ones that went through that first cohort particularly were in a, a bit of a privileged space in terms of what was going on. Uh, in fact, Bud was one of them, actually, wasn't it? So yeah, we did just an episode way back in the day with, with about three or four different companies that went through the sandbox. Um, I remember uh, Autonomous was another, and there were a few others that, that came on the show. The, the second thing that sort of came through was Probably, and I, and I think there's been a, a lot of people sort of talking about this, but the, the sort of bias slightly towards Greater London with uh, within the first two cohorts, it was about 35% of the firms that were in uh, London, whereas actually 25% going outside of that in, in the rest of them. So they've started to sort of change that uh, that bias slightly in terms of where they're going, but it, it does still feel like quite a London-centric setup. The other thing which is probably going to light um, Simon's ears on, on fire on this one was the amount of of basically popularization of, of new technologies that were being pulled through. So DLT particularly, was it 17 firms utilizing the technology? 17 out of the 48, yeah. Which is pretty impressive, right? And that's right? distributed ledger technology behind blockchain. That is true. Yeah, so I guess that's it was flavor of the month at the time. So there would have been just a lot of people starting companies in that and it's applying still flavor of the month, isn't it? Yeah, well, have we moved uh, on to a new flavor. Uh, yeah, well, I'd say AI was the bigger one according to a poll at Cybos. But um, the 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 other wow, thing I'm backing is backing that up with fact. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 I know that's a new one for this show. Uh, the, but the, I guess the other thing was there's so much regulatory uncertainty around some blockchain stuff. But what's interesting is and, and nobody paid attention to this fact. The FCA have regulated a company called Navura and another company called BlockX who issue securities, um, Navura especially, issue bonds onto the Bitcoin blockchain. This is something that a lot of people say, how do I do it? It's hard to be done. It can't be done. Well, the project, uh, it's already been done in the UK. Like There are lots of part of the world worrying about how you get it done. You can do it. So w what I like about the sandbox approach is this idea that there's, there's a sort of a come be open with us, share how you're thinking about your risks, and we'll work with you one-to-one -to, -one to help you understand either A, you fit into an existing regulation, or B, we need to think about where you would end up with a, with a new regulated position, or you're not regulated, which, you know, if you're a small company, you can't necessarily go pay Deloitte or PwC X million pounds to, to figure this stuff out. Um, and I think this is why they've been able to um, get a lot of things to market faster, cheaper 
deeper um, and bring things to market that wouldn't have otherwise got to market. And we've seen the CFTC in the USA, the OCC in the USA are now um, doing similar initiatives. MAS in Singapore, the uh, Hong Kong Monetary Authority, Japan, South Korea. There's there's a lot of people thinking this is actually something we want to copy. So that to me sounds like success. I mean, I don't know if, Kadim, you have a more uh, a different view. No, I'm being super positive today. <laughs> I am. Um, I, I actually did not know about either of those companies issuing bonds and whatnot onto the Bitcoin blockchain. So I'm going to check that out. What I really liked was uh, in the FCA's report, like the sense that they were learning. Um, and so the, the, like two things uh, sprung out to me. One was um, uh, we, we've, we've discovered that startups have difficulty getting banking accounts. You know, we've, we've got a better appreciation of that. It's like, oh, that's that's nice. That's good that you're recognizing this, this difficulty. There's a real gap that, in that part of the market, uh-huh. without question. Yeah. And then there's this other bit where they're like, um, we observed, you know, people trying to integrate APIs. Turns out that's, like, practically impossible. <laughs> like, like, cool. Like, the, the FCA is, like, discovering the problems that exist in, in the world. What about you, Shan? I picked out the same point about the uh, about the denial of banking services to, to startups. Thinking back, I think it was a few weeks ago, one or other of you was talking about HSBC and that blog post that that went viral mm. and actually the challenges in, in in simply operating as a business when you're doing a, a non-standard business model like they have yeah getting actually just getting hold of a bank account in the first place is like 12 to 18 weeks of, of pain which is crazy you can get customers you can get an accounting package but you can't actually get a bank account and then when you Mad. do get the bank account it's a glorified retail mm. bank account but your needs as a small business you know that covers one percent maybe 0.1 percent of your actual needs but what's interesting is even in that small cohort i think they said there were two two of their cohort who weren't able to get banking services. And you extrapolate that against, you know, as a sample of the... But then I guess if you've got 17 of the firms or whatever the percentage it was doing distributed ledger technology, then, you know, we might be into, well, yeah, I'm doing a Bitcoin thing. And then all of the banks, it might not be a classic startup thing, but something more about their business model. And uh, yeah, yeah the, the, it suggests it's quite widespread, though. Without question, you see some things in the blockchain and DLT space, where there's definitely an immaturity of, of the controls put around it. But as they come through something like the sandbox, you can sort of say, well, their, their controls are mature. Often banks just don't understand what those controls are, because typically the way a bank would look at risk would be to say, hey, do you have a, a lot of people in, com- in a compliance department and have you done these things versus like, the, the do you have really cool software? Yeah, but I, you know, I don't think many banks actually like Santander didn't ask me if I, you know you were faffing about with cryptocurrency when we got a business account. You know, what I mean, like I, I actually I think it just generally comes down to the checks that they do on individuals and and potentially the you know the symptom that we've seen in fintech a lot is that it actually it's non UK residents coming to London and creating that doesn't that sounds like I'm being negative about it. That's not a, like a, they're here to steal our jobs type <laughs> of mentality. But it's um you know it's the inability to do correct. KYC, KYB, that actually leads to people not being able to get bank accounts. That's fair. That's really fair. Okay, so the next story, uh, Monzo and Starling take bigger steps towards payment integration. I guess building on uh, Sharon's point about API integration and reaching outside of the banking app, outside of the branch and the phone, you know, out there into the wider world. Monzo and Starling have both been pretty active in driving acceptance of of new payment uh, mechanisms. So Monzo introduced Android Pay on the 24th of October, but Starling are arguably way ahead with introducing Android Pay on the 6th of September and Apple Pay on the 18th of July. So um, I, I guess there's some interesting things here on, I guess there's two points to this. One, that the new banks are driving towards things that could be seen to be that new millennial sort of of, you know, zeitgeist. Secondly, you know, Android Pay and Apple Pay, have they really been used a lot? And actually, is this more of a, you know, a PR thing and a hygiene factor than something that's really going to affect many people at all? I Okay, this is, I'm going to say this one is actually a bad thing. Oh, no. Because, because like, everyone who's ever used, like, mobile like, payment, payments with their phone knows that it's, like, slow and a pain in the ass and just just not as good as just using a card. Like we invented these tiny little bits of plastic. They are very thin. They don't take up a lot of space and they just go boop tap. And instead, I have to stand beside some guy getting his humongous iPhone out, which is like, you know, <laughs> three times bigger than his Kadeem, face. You're back. Yeah, welcome and, back. <laughs> and like just sit there for a minute while the phone just goes yeah, now I'll pay for it. <laughs> I think I might be the only person in the world who really likes Apple Pay. I love it. 
I, I have it on my watch because I'm a woman. I don't have pockets. And most of the oh, time... Oh, that's the worst. The, when they're fumbling so around with the I, watch. I am that on person the... at the barriers. Beeping away. I, I love it. I use it every single day. Um, and when Fitbit Pay was, was first mooted, I was actually quite excited because it's bringing payment on wearables, you know, to yes, the mass market. Yes, because have announced that now yeah, as well. Yeah, you know, a, a lower price point. So I know outside London, I was, I was in Cornwall for a wedding a few weeks ago and I used my watch in a shop and people looked at me like I should be burned as a witch. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrifying. Um, yeah, it's like, um, Anyway, so I, I was actually quite excited about it becoming a more normal thing so people don't look at me like I'm old. It was an interesting stat that came out of um, Money 2020. Apple claimed that 90% of all contactless payments in the US were going through Apple Pay. And I just really want to see... That That's quite possible, though, because they're just crap with contactless. Yeah, yeah. so not- the banks themselves aren't issuing contactless yeah. cards, but there are a lot of contactless terminals out there. So it's weird that that stat is true and the experience in the US could be quite different yeah. just because it's almost like they've skipped the whole contactless card thing. And plus, mass transit there doesn't really use um, contactless in the same way we do. So you've quite fortunately, if you knew the US, you've never experienced Cadim's pain. Um, <laughs> but Cadim's pain is real, let me assure you. Uh, the, but then the, uh, the interesting thing about the US is obviously there's all this you know, nonsense with yeah. checks and whatever else. But in the in the UK, we went through you know card swiping, and then we went to chip and pin, and now contactless is obviously much better than chip and pin. But just swiping a card also does not take a very long time it's to do. It's a great experience. It's it's full of fraud, but it's a right. great experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, no, we saw the CEO of Stripe on stage in Copenhagen talking about, actually, the card is is really quite a clever piece of kit. I mean, it's no battery. It's virtually indestructible. You can get it wet. Um, you know, you can go anywhere and you've got this little piece of plastic and you can pay securely with it. And replacing that with something that's expensive and bigger and runs out of battery and won't always work, it's not something that answers a customer need. But it is something that has attraction to a certain proportion of the population. So it may change in the US because MasterCard just announced that in 2018, they're actually going to turn off um, swipe and sign and they're going to insist that there's there's something else coming in that might be actual pins and it might be more contactless stuff. And um, You'd imagine that Visa would follow suit and hopefully Amex as well. So the, that, that experience may change. But it's in, I'm, I'm curious to see, is, do we end up with like this kind of skipping a couple of generations rather than going, as Kadim said, through, through chip and pin into... To contactless into mobile they just go straight to mobile mm. I, I think it's very very contextual so I, i'm i'm with you Kadim. like i find it super annoying when somebody uses it in front of you and i generally like end up walking <laughs> into them not on purpose obviously <laughs> um but it and, and actually if the same on the bus like if somebody's doing that and faffing about you're literally stopping people getting on you know like that's the, me every day one of the, <laughs> one of the places where i uh, i'll be tutting very loudly behind you like only british people do um but um one of the places where we've got an office right now the entry system is is via mobile phone and using the nfc chip and it's so bloody painful honestly the amount of like flat noses i've got walking into doors you know i'm, I'm like begging them for a piece of plastic right now so uh yeah i think it's it's almost like your level of expectation of immediacy like my my expectation just isn't there yeah with contactless is you do it it's done whereas actually with the mobile phone there's like the prime and the thing and then waiting and you know feeling the the nerve it's like using amex in the 90s right it's like that (laughs) are they going to accept it are they not that's what mobile payments is now in fairness i mean it's sort of like obviously fixable right there's probably there's some technical reason why for some reason actually i'd love for someone to explain to me why exactly the phones aren't as fast as like the piece of plastic but clearly that's fixable but then you do still you know that the chat from stripe is absolutely right it's just a bit of plastic it's not like a big hassle to carry around and you can't break it unless you really try to break it whereas my phone could run out of battery could whatever else but yeah you know as, as the token woman i have to go into my bag take out my purse take out the card hit it on things so I, i'm at least as annoying with the card on the tube <laughs> yeah. as I'm the watch. why don't I use the tube anymore so moving on submitted to fintech insider news by uh, bob who made her uh, fintech insider debut on last week's canadian news show uh, the poppy appeal goes contactless i i quite like I love this. this yeah right so uh, when i'm um, being annoying at stations again uh, you know i buy a poppy i inevitably lose it as soon as i get through the barrier so i've handed over whatever cash i have with me by the time i get up the tube at the other end i've it's fallen off my coat and then i feel guilty for not buying another one and then i have to walk past an old veteran i don't hate veterans i just haven't got any cash so at least now i can assuage my guilt by buying another one see see you're you're very 
good. In my head, I'm like, now I don't have an excuse. To, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, if I, I probably have do one that on, with most of the others. Yeah, because if, if I have one on like four coats and still feel that guilt, do you know what I mean? It's Now you don't have an excuse not to buy that next one in what you're doing. So they've got 200 mobile terminals. They developed it in partnership with uh, Cardnet and they'll have pr- three preset levels of £2, £3 of £5 for donations. So as you walk by, you can just use your card or use your watch. I will. Sharon. I will use you my watch. You don't use your watch. You know, There'll be a to do queue for the poppy donation. <laughs> <laughs> Behind me using my watch, slowing everyone down. Well, with that, let's quickly take a break and hear from our sponsors. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank, and the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. We never have enough time to cover every news story that's happened in the week. Uh, but don't forget that you can head over to fintechinsidernews.com and read more about the stories we've discussed and the ones we don't get to. You can also sign up and join the discussion with everyone on the podcast and many of the names in the fintech world. Tell us what you thought of this week's stories. Tell us why David Burry is wrong. You can do that all on fintechinsidernews.com. Oh, I get a lot of those, don't worry. <laughs> And us, well, we're 11FS, a challenger consultancy that creates and launches next-generation finance propositions for our clients, taking a startup approach to making a difference. Come talk to us at 11FS Team, which I almost misread there as 11F Steam, which is a bit Mm, odd. Trademark that bad boy straight away. (laughs) (laughs) So on to the next news story, submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Yoni Levy. Facebook Messenger ads paypal as p2p payment option david yeah i was a bit confused by this one because i thought this had been around for a while if i'm honest with you i thought like this had happened but actually i think what i was thinking was actually since 2016 you've been able to do payments for a thing but not peer-to-peer payments which was confusing to me why that wouldn't be the uh, the same thing so you could you could buy something via messenger paypal setup but you couldn't pay you as an individual um, and I, I guess this is an interesting one, but um, I kind of don't really use PayPal anymore. It was one of those things that met a need for me over a period of time. But actually, as other things have kind of come through, PayPal's become less and less a, a requirement day to day. But like an interesting stat on this one is 114 billion people, uh, no, 114 billion total payment volume. 114 billion would be a statistic, <laughs> wouldn't it? Um, but And that's a, a volume increase of 47%. So... Screw me and my sort of sample size of me. In, Q, uh, in Q3. Yeah, so other people are definitely using this. And, and I guess the, uh, the the sort of increase there as well. Yeah, so, you know, clearly I'm not the norm and probably should stop using myself as that. So. Well, yeah, since, since they um, split from eBay, PayPal shares have gone from around $38 to around $68. They reached an all-time high a couple of weeks ago. Um, the business is doing well, but it's largely on the back of uh, Venmo and Braintree and some clever acquisitions. The core of that business, that brand, and PayPal doesn't seem to be doing much. And it just struck me that Facebook Messenger is the obvious place and, and WhatsApp and some of the Facebook properties are the obvious place that you would send messages to each other and it would be a lovely way to send money to each other and PayPal would have the brand to get that done. It just feels like they're dragging their feet. I mean... But do you, do you, do you guys use Messenger? Sorry yeah. to... Sorry, yeah, yeah. Do you? So, and it's not you just really me. are a bad sample yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> so, I know this because it was in a decorate the other day, but... Um, no, we spent... 80% of our time in, in three apps and one of those for most people is a messenger app their messenger app of choice so other people definitely use messenger not yeah. Yeah. and nearly 900 million of them but it's funny because like Ven- yeah, uh, Venmo so has nobody's like- sending me messages on messenger is that what you're <laughs> saying <laughs> well because you're in this business that works 14 hour days you're on slack like all of the that's time that's true yeah that's true <laughs> get shit done but it is I mean it is because you know as you mentioned Venmo is one of the reasons that people are like super uh, bullish about PayPal but you're like, well, how are you going to make money off Venmo? Because I am never, ever, ever going to pay a fee to send my friend some money. Could it just, it's ludicrous. Um, and so 
it's this kind of interesting thing where P2P payments clearly make sense from a consumer point of view. Um, and I don't think people have entirely figured out how then that turns into profit for the, for the provider. Yeah. I think it's great that we're sort of continually seeing the sort of integration into payments where seemingly everybody but me is is at. So, you know, the, the idea that, you know, the sort of contextual nature of, of payments makes total sense. And if, you know, Facebook is where you've got most of your friends, unlike me, apparently, again, based on that point, then it kind of makes sense. But um, uh, is this a Facebook? Facebook story or is it a PayPal story? I think it's a pay- PayPal pushing Facebook. In in my in my view of the world, uh, PayPal is looking for relevance now. You know, they were that way of buying things online when people didn't want to put their credit card details in. Lots of times, they were the aggregator, eBay, everyone else. I think we've moved by that. You know, we're suddenly, we're seeing uh, W3C introducing uh, new uh, ways of doing payments APIs online. We're seeing everyone either put their details into Amazon or use one of the modern browsers that remembers your your credit card details. Safari, yo. Uh, and so, actually, you might. Safari, didn't <laughs> wow! As as a sample, you're definitely in, in all kinds of trouble. So, so I, I think this story somewhere. <laughs> I think this story pilot. is very much a uh, PayPal, you know, forcing their way into Facebook as a as another way of doing it. I, I thought what was quite interesting about this is they targeted the US because using PayPal used to be basically a fudge to get around regulatory challenges of sending people money in India, as far as I could work out, and. Um, uh, certainly back in the day and uh, that they've targeted the US market and maybe not to, to emerging markets was quite an interesting play I thought mm. yeah PayPal does appear to be the easiest way to pay people in America though definitely just say you can send them a check <laughs> <laughs> okay moving on the next story submitted to Fintech Insider News by Bob McLean uh, Alipay expands US reach with North American bank card point deals I'm not sure what the point deals piece is. Simon, tell me. Yeah, Alipay does a thing. Alipay buys a thing. Um, so Alipay, as we know, have become the payments brand of China. Uh, they, much like Visa and MasterCard and, and uh, China Union Pay, they're, they're one of the big payments brands in the world. Uh, point are one of these um, payments processors, but they do a point of sale and uh, electronics terminals. So if you're a small business, you you would buy either the square terminal or you'd buy the point terminal and that would allow your business to accept and acquire card payments. Well, now you can acquire Alipay payments. So if somebody is traveling from China and has an Alipay wallet, uh, anybody who has a point terminal in their store, probably in the US, can now pay at that store with Alipay. Interesting um, sidebar, the CEO of Point was also the guy behind the ill-fated Google wallet, um, and Point has since gone on to, to do quite well, as has Alipay, so I wonder if there'll be a, a crossover there. But Alipay have um, sort of, what, 520 million users compared to the, we were just talking about PayPal with their 218 million users, and this follows the partnership that Alipay had done with First Data, so they are partnering like a machine right now to get acceptance, and it was always Visa that was selling themselves on, we're accepted everywhere, um, um, Alipay is being accepted everywhere. I for one sure. welcome our new Chinese overlords. Yeah, indeed. Alipay, well, we, of course, we've had Rita Liu on the podcast more than once. And uh, certainly Alipay has been very innovative in, in how it enables people to um, not only make payments, but make them social. We were talking about why hadn't PayPal integrated with Facebook Messenger. Um, there's a whole social network integration um, and ability to integrate with businesses through the mobile device that Alipay had been the pioneers on, frankly. Um, but I guess if you're Visa or MasterCard, this is scary. I mean, you've got essentially a new global scheme uh, with momentum and hundreds of millions of users uh, pushing through into your territory, your homelands. I do wonder what it must be like in like the various like boardrooms or like C-suites of you know European or American companies where you know something you know like some assistant will bring them the latest news of what like a Chinese tech giant has done, and they just go. Ah, oh, we're 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 really not doing very well, are we? <laughs> you see, I don't think that happens. I think there is this bubble of being like um sort of uh chauffeured around your life in which people fuss around you as a as a chairman or as a CEO or, or or any sort of person in that position. You find yourself where bank employees have this thing about they're gonna stage manage your entire existence, whether you want it or not, um and just run around so that you, this never gets oh, I, exposed. I yearn for that life. <laughs> when will it happen? 
but <laughs> I do I do love Simon sort of like post Barclays PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> You're not the first person to say that to me. By the way, people who work for Barclays, I love you all, <laughs> and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. That's a great organisation. But, but when you look at the you know the average age of a of a big uh, a big board you know you're talking people in their late 50s 60s who have had amazingly successful careers 20 years ago that really made their name that did phenomenally well and are now applying that business knowledge where they are and it, it must be super difficult because the thing that got them their success the reason that they're in the board and their all of their intuition and their gut around what they're doing is now being thrust into this market where not only don't they have the experience there, but they don't have the day-to-day digital experience either. They're, you know, living their, their lovely nice house and their, you know, their grandkids are maybe using tech. You know, are they really the right people in order to to lead and and create the strategy for those companies? And if not, then who do you bring in? Because no one's going to allow a 30-year-old to come in, even though they might be the, the person who has the best insights as to what the company should be doing. Come on, they do do that. That's where I was this week, right? They, <laughs> they let the crazy in every so often. <laughs> Send him home. Okay, moving on. Uh, David, N26 announces plans to launch in the US by mid-2018. Yeah, I love this. I, I, the the We've had um, Valentina on the uh, podcast a few times before, and actually there's just a really fun quote in here. So we looked at the products in the US and figured out that most of the banking products in the US are even worse than in Europe. (laughs) Seems like a good reason to enter as as any, really. But, um, you know, N26 have been doing some really interesting things, you know, moving across multiple geographies, acquiring customers like uh, absolute gangbusters in this space. So, you know, I think it's a, a really interesting, really, really brave thing because actually doing it across Europe within a uh, you know a, a similar regulatory framework makes total sense moving to the US and then changing what you're doing state by state to kind of try and hoover up fractions of customers that might start to move to this stuff so given what we were talking about earlier on with the state of the technology there going to be really really difficult so you know I think it's super brave for them to kind of go and do it and I think we've seen from the the likes of the failures of uh, you know simple and moving to to really sort of scale up in the way that they would want to do that it's it's just going to be really hard for them. I, I don't think it's brave. I think it's obligatory. I think every new challenger bank across Europe is going to be eyeing the US, the new fintech banking license. Mm. The fact that Simple and Moven came probably too early in the cycle. There's some moves there that, that make this the, the right time. Moves and given, from Moven, that was nice. nice. And given the VC investment in these uh, these new banks, the push towards bigger markets uh, where they can actually do something is going to be huge. Well, consider that um, Peter Thiel is a backer of N26. This is somebody with a lot of stroke in the US and certainly with the administration. A lot of stroke. Stroke, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he gets a lot of stroke. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. He's got a lot of um, influence. I don't know how you do deals, Simon. (laughs) Peter Thiel has a lot of influence in the US, especially with the US administration, who he seems to have aligned himself. And, of course, his former PayPal mafia has a few billion to throw around. Uh, But here's somebody that can open doors. To, To Jason's point as well, the OCC with the new fintech license, I think, really makes this interesting timing because my question for N26 going into the US market is the regulation mass is just, I mean, um, Sam was saying this on, on last week's Fintech Insider News is that you haven't really seen that challenger bank reach scale that like you've seen in Europe. Here is a bank that has now reached scale in Europe trying to repeat the trick so they've got pedigree and they've learned some lessons and they have some backing. They've done it in, what, 19 markets across Europe as well? But then the US regulatory landscape is notoriously complex. But then you say they've reached scale. I know in, like, August there was a a article in TechCrunch about them having 500,000 customers. So actually they're arguably smaller than the Revolut, you know, they're equivalent size to Monzo. You know, it's interesting that that N26 have very much gone the let's spread out into every country and, you know, I don't know, they're in 16 countries or something. Uh, But... Interestingly, they don't have the customer numbers that actually some of the players who have been focusing on one area and one customer base have. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, if you look at the way banking is at the moment, I mean, we do not have a, you know, transatlantic massive retail bank that has huge presence in North America and huge presence in Europe. It doesn't exist. And so that's not to say that it cannot exist, that, you know, potentially N26 could be that. But 
I think that has to make you make you a little bit skeptical about whether mm. they are able to build a business. And I think, yeah, and to your point, you know, they don't have huge scale. And I wonder where, how much this is to, you know, about if you've got investors and you're a venture-funded company saying our market is you know, uh, both sides of the, this massive ocean instead of just one side of this massive ocean, whether that helps you in terms of valuation and you know, making that argument. Uh, reading into the survey, it said that N26 was going to take care of the user-facing features while a third-party accredited bank is going to manage your money. So it sounds like they're just white-labeling the front or white labeling the front end with the same whatever is going on with your local bank in the back Good end cash. to get around the, the regulatory... Which, was, which does feel sort of more like a simple or moving play, yeah, doesn't yeah. it, again? But um, I guess that's part and parcel of actually how difficult it is currently to get a banking licence, isn't it? So, um, so speaking of Revolut, though, actually they've announced that they'll be moving into the US in 2018 as well. The really interesting feature that they're looking at launching with is actually allowing people to have um, three different IBANs within an account. So it's in a Eurozone one, a UK IBAN, and a US IBAN, which going back to our point earlier on about transfers of, of money, that's a really interesting feature to kind of start with, isn't well, it? Well, that global account, whether it's TransferWise, who we were talking to, or Revolut, or HSBC and City, that, that global citizen or the global business where actually I want to do business elsewhere, therefore I need an account number and sort code, I need an IBAN, yeah. I need a routing number, I need mm-hmm. you know the ability to take different uh, currencies in different countries more quickly and easily. It is obviously a, an opening, a gap where there is this this business opportunity there. I think it's like Kadim said though, there isn't a global bank, is there? You know, the HSBC is is kind of everything up to Europe from from Hong Kong and doesn't really get into the US very much beyond sort of uh, advertisements in airports, really, you know, in terms of kind of what, what there is. So and city you know, and the inverse, like so, cities everywhere from a corporate perspective. Like if you're a, if you're a global corporate, city is kind of everywhere. Mm. Similar with JP Morgan, but on the retail side, you don't really see it, and especially on the small business side, you don't. But but that's what interests me from the AliPay WeChat model, because actually, if you're going to drive towards that global bank, you need something that benefits from network effects, mm. because you need something that you say we've got a billion customers, and therefore, because you're billion and first, you benefit. Mm. And actually, traditionally, banks haven't really had that. You know, the fact that we have. 10 million customers or 50 million customers, so what? You know, what's the connection? Yet with Alipay and WeChat and the ability to add vendors in and and, uh, connect it to this ecosystem, then you do get those network effects and therefore you see them across China. So I do wonder how network effects change banking and actually and then given that would that then by extension lead to global players rather than the individuals well i think i mean banks are also like very political and i think like you know countries are not entirely comfortable with you know all of their customer all of their citizens being served by a bank that is not a bank of that country and i think that also has to you know, pl- plays a part in why it is hard for foreign banks to break into that's, countries. That's so true. I was talking to the non-executive director of um, of a bank where they were talking about the regulators' fear of losing control of monetary policy because suddenly there's flight of capital from that country into, I don't know, an Icelandic bank, for instance. And suddenly it's like, whoa, you know, they can crash us because we don't have any jurisdiction over them. So how does that play out uh, in, in that kind of world? So don't let people transfer money out of their accounts quickly. Is that what you're saying? Capital controls everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. So moving on, UAE appoints the first minister for artificial intelligence. And this was submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Callum. Thanks, Callum. Uh, And in arabianbusiness.com, a publication I wasn't that familiar with, to be honest. I was hoping that this was actually going to be an artificial intelligence as a minister, uh, but unfortunately not. So Omar bin Sultan, aged just 27, is the country's first minister of state for artificial intelligence and basically the world's first minister for AI. Uh, The appointment comes after the launch of the UAE strategy for artificial intelligence and apparently part of their ambition is to be at the forefront of global technological revolution, which is obviously a uh, a UAE press release, Uh, building homes on the planet Mars by 2117, having robocops on the streets of Dubai by 2030, and having autonomous planes and trains. It reminds me of that uh, 
that country in the Marvel universe that has, um, you know, where the Black Panther comes from, that has all of the the tech in in one place. I, I love how that that really just drops in terms of ambition. So like, home, <laughs> homes on the planet Mars in a hundred years. All right, whatever. Like, um, Robocops on the streets to buy by twenty thirty. Whatever. Autonomous planes. Cool. Um, and then autonomous trains. Like, you mean that thing that the already DLR. exists? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the DLR, yeah. <laughs> it, wa- it was like, uh, and we're going to have an, and, and, um, <laughs> and all this stuff as well. Things on rails that drive themselves? So it, it's a very interesting thing that they've appointed some. They, they feel the need now to appoint somebody for this. And given that, you know, in that region, they're making such a big noise about investing in all of the, you know, smart city, smart technology stuff, then it sort of naturally feels like if you're going to be tearing everything up and making crazy amounts of investment that you're probably going to need to have somebody thinking about it. I haven't looked into this guy's background, whether he's like the guy who's the god of all this stuff, Um, but it sort of sounds like it kind of makes sense to me. AI is red, red, red hot right now, and some of that's definitely going to be hype, and a lot of that's going to be marketing, and there's a lot of... um, budget uh, and a recognition I think in this part of the world that oil revenue will run out as, as we move to renewables uh, and so building a diverse economy is, is is absolutely important and why wouldn't you go after the technology that's that's considered extremely hot and so there's some sense to it but also this does read like a lot of headlines and buzzwords um, I think Dubai also said their entire government would be run on blockchain and DLT by 2020 which you know, good luck uh, so there's still time <laughs> it's one of these things where we're going to make an announcement about making an announcement but i want to see like the execution behind it like what does this actually really mean other than we're ambitious i'm all for ambition ambition does have a tendency of producing results even if it's not within the the timeline you were initially expected i mean elon musk is the classic example of that the there's a related story that i saw a few days ago on in the new york times around tech giants are paying huge salaries for scarce ai talent and the, the, the figures in there were typical AI specialists, including both fresh PhDs out of school and just people with just a few years of experience, can be paid 300000 to 500000 a year or more in salary and stock, uh, according to nine people who work for the major tech companies and have entertained job offers for, for them. I mean, wow, if you're an AI person, you are like, you are made. So from artificial intelligence to children's financial education intelligence. Uh, I like this story. Um, So it was on creditsuisse.com, which gives you a a hint as to which uh, company we're talking about. DigiPiggy. Who doesn't want a DigiPiggy? It's a a maestro card, a parent's app, a child's app, a digital piggy bank available from, from seven years old. And basically, parents can teach children how to manage their money with these DigiPiggy apps, which I guess is very much like um, uh, GoHenry, Osper, those those style of things, but seems very much more integrated in terms of the offering. And they can pay pocket money and agree on rewards for, for, for special chores and do all of those kinds of things. Unfortunately, there was a line in this that uh, made me tweet it, which was that it took two years and 200 people to make the product. I mean, wow. That is quite but remarkable. But hold on, hold on. It doesn't matter how long it took or how many people you know, worked on it. What matters is, is it a good app? The quality, not the quantity. But come on, 200 people <laughs> in two years? Like, how many apps are they? Are you making? I mean, this you could... Maybe how long would it take to clone Go Henry or Osper? Maybe they really? were only working nine to five. That might have been an issue. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to make a living. But is this just not another good example of that big bank tax? You know, something that, that actually in the startup world costs a million, 12 people, and you can get it going in a few months, suddenly costs... 50 million, 100 million, 200 people and 250 sign-offs before you suddenly launch it. And you don't even know it's going to work. This is like brand new being tested out in the, in the public eye. Uh, whereas they could have, they could have made almost all of this. So someone, someone, um, created a digital piggy bank at a Monzo hackathon, uh, using the APIs from it. And it didn't take 200 people in two years to, to put that thing together. Maybe they're looking at the longer term picture, the, the, the focusing on the future wealthy and encouraging them to build their own investment portfolio. This is, uh, this is Credit Suisse, not Monzo. Maybe, maybe what they mean is that there was like an event 
a Credit Suisse event two years ago where there was 200 people and they all voted to say, let's make this app. And then about like two months ago, one guy or one person made it. I, I, I think it's just amazing this has happened. I think that's the thing. In a big bank, the fact that they've managed to make this thing happen, however, like you say, however much money, however much time, like we've, we've heard crazy quotes for stuff. Literally this week, we've heard crazy quotes for stuff. Far more expensive this, than this one, taking far more time. So actually, I kind of think, um, well done for Credit Suisse actually getting this done. For delivering, absolutely. There was a Nordic bank, and I think um, one from, from Australasia, that have done similar initiatives as well. And so this is a bit of a theme developing where people are building apps to want to teach children how to manage their money safely, which I'm all for in a digital sense. And two, what a great customer acquisition plan. Get them while they're young. Um, and I'm just going to say, DigiPiggy is really fun to say. Like, just, <laughs> and if anybody remembers um, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, Ziggy Piggy, Ziggy Piggy. I, this, well, that, that's one know, for the slightly For old. an Asian bank, anything that had a pig on it was automatically removed by brand. So uh, <laughs> it, it actually limits its, its export potential. Yeah, I, I've experienced that bit as well. Like, yeah, Piggy banks not allowed no, so I think. It I, it, it's the eye at the end of pig that makes it fun isn't yeah, it, it it's is. the piggy piggy it's yeah. kind of cute yeah. you yeah. know what I just really value the high quality analysis on this one <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so someone who's been intimately involved with naming two banks in the UK, I'll have to say that actually mouthfeel, like whether it's fun to say, is one of the major things. It's like, you know, it actually has to be vaguely positive to say. I remember testing a few names that were clever and interesting and had a really great story, but they just... They just weren't fun to say. There's something really important about having a, you know, uh, having a vehicle that is fun to say. So moving on, and some would say too late. (laughs) Uh, Sharon, we've Mm. got to talk about this. The Bank of England spends £3,000 on a Snapchat filter to promote a new £10 note. This, they're down with the kids. They're down with the kids. Yeah, this just sort of made me shake my head and sigh. So um, they did a Snapchat filter that was geo-targeted, I think, at uh, a couple of cities. So London, Leeds, uh, other places, I don't know, in order to promote the new £10 note, which I just thought was really weird. Because, you know, it's not like that. it's it's aiming for market share against the, a number of other fiat <laughs> currencies. Oh, I, you know, I really wanted one of those Clydesdale bank tenors. But uh-huh. here I am. Um, so it just seemed like a really odd thing to do. Um, the more serious point is, it's, you know, that whole social and digital media is growing up and increasingly you have to prove the value of the of money you spend. So there is there are frameworks you can use. There are decisions you can make on whether that was a good use of money. In the grand scheme of things, it's only three grand. It's not a huge amount of money, but it's really bizarre that they chose to do it in this I'm, way. I'm going to be super positive about this story <laughs> because one, it's not that much money. And two, when you have new money, you do have to like have acceptance of it because fiat money relies on people believing in it and also in them having to pay tax with it, but also them believing in it. And so if there's going to be a new weird £10 note out there. People need to know about it. And Snapchat's really cool. It so. is a weird note. Like when you get this thing, it's kind of... So and you I, can see through it. Like so, that's so, new and weird. Like they have so for, everywhere else. So for the Australians and the Canadians who've already got plastic money who what, that you can kind of see through, the first time you with deal with plastic... As well. money, yeah. But we've yeah. had the fiver for six months. You know, yeah, but you don't get those from ATM. cash machines. So you go they to a do. cash machine. In, and you... in really low-income areas, they give out fivers. But do you remember... I when, love those. When, we, London. when they introduced, like, chip and pin, like, how many years did we spend telling people that you have to remember four numbers? Who I just think, like, a little bit of Snapchat just to tell people about the new note, I think is but, but I guess it's interesting as to, again, is this a fintech bubble? Is it a London bubble? And if I go out to, I don't know... Some, some Bath, Newcastle, pick a pick a region, and I went to a shop and I gave my twenty pound note, and that I got my Jaffa cakes, and they gave me one of these new Fantangle ten pound note in return. Then it, you know, do do I suddenly go? Oh, hold on a minute, I'm not going to accept that. This is funny money. Okay, so that that's one scenario. But is that going to affect someone who's a Snapchat uh, exactly. fan? Who uses a Snapchat like on the much, iPhone? Why, why would how much overlap why is would, there? Why would a Snapchat fan know like, necessarily know about the machinations of the Bank of England on any, on any given day? Because they've I mean, been to an ATM, they're a student or something. I mean, so Douglas Adams talked about technology, and he said anything that exists when you're born is just normal. Anything that's invented before between the age of you know eighteen and thirty or whatever is exciting, and you make your career based on it. And anything when you're over thirty-five 
is just wrong and Snapchat proves that to me like the UI <laughs> might as well be in cuneiform I just don't get I, it I'm com- completely with you on that one Snapchat makes no sense to me I, at I all. just what is it for it's it makes so it straightforward like the just, filters you are just, fun yeah the filters are fun conversation in pictures yeah like, but the, the filters are fun and like taking a funny picture with my like three-year-old daughter is and like we both look like pandas we love it it's great but actually like <laughs> using it and sending it to, like no this but. is i think paypal needs to integrate with snapchat conversations <laughs> in pictures that's all you can remember I'm, I'm sorry that's the millennial association on the phone they want their card back <laughs> you're no longer a member oh, damn it. <laughs> uh, but most people would leave it at that point i think and i you know myself i'm like it's not for me but Sharon, you didn't. There was a, a there was a very strongly worded letter. <laughs> no, well, okay. I, I I was on a conference call for some, and they someone hadn't turned up the second time. They hadn't turned up, so I was on hold to particularly irritating music. So I decided to do uh, an FOI asking them to provide the business case of. So for those in, in the international oh, audience, yeah. so so I put, submitted a freedom of information request through what do they know, which is an open source site that helps you submit freedom of information requests to public authorities, and I asked them to supply the business case, the objectives, the evaluation framework that they're using to measure the success of the campaign. Uh, definitely because I'm interested, not just to be really annoying. I'm sorry, the, the success of the Snapchat campaign? campaign? Yeah, I've asked them to explain what they were doing. But I do have form, to be yeah. fair. And on that note, uh, that wraps up another new show. Thanks so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Kevin? Um, I'm on Twitter at Kadam Schuber and I write on Alphaville at FT, alphaville.ft.com. Perfect. Sharon? Uh, I am Sharon O'Day, which is my name, on Twitter and also SharonO'Day.co.uk, which links to pretty much everything I do. And what about David? Where can you find me? I'm in the office 16 hours a day. <laughs> no, I'm uh, at David Breer on Twitter and uh, if you Google me, I'll probably come up somewhere as well at S.Y. Taylor on Twitter or just part of at 11FS team. Nice. So as always, if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or go on Facebook or Snapchat. No, not Snapchat. uh, To find us on the Fintech Insider page or YouTube for exclusive content. So 11FS is a challenger consultancy that creates and launches next generation fintech propositions for our clients, taking a startup approach. Come talk to us at 11FS team. If you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Amazing.